Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, February 14th through Sunday, the 17th, feature guest conductor Pablo Eras Casado and pianist Simon Trepchevsky. The program includes Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 3 and, after intermission, Winter Dreams, Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 1. Here are Philip Husher's program notes on the Rachmaninoff Third Piano Concerto, a work lasting about 44 minutes. Although Rachmaninoff's music is sometimes confused with the treacly romanticism of the Hollywood soundtracks it once inspired, Rachmaninoff himself was a serious and aristocratic artist. He was one of the greatest pianists in history, an astonishing virtuoso in the historic tradition of Liszt. But there is nothing flashy about his stage manner. Rachmaninoff was surprisingly somber and remote for a crowd-pleasing superstar. He rarely smiled or courted the audience, and even his close-cropped haircut of a kind that is ubiquitous today but was highly suspect at the time, like that of a convict, as Russian bass Fyodor Shalyapin said, suggested a stern presence. Shalyapin also scolded him for his curt, preemptory bows. Much later, Stravinsky called him a six-and-a-half-foot-tall scowl. Rachmaninoff would have become famous if he had done nothing but concertize, but his true aspiration was to become a composer. At the Moscow Conservatory, his teacher, Nikolai Zverev, encouraged him to stick to the piano instead of writing music. But Rachmaninoff tried his hand at composing some piano pieces and an orchestral scherzo, and he even started an opera, Esmeralda. Unable to choose between composition and performance, Rachmaninoff ultimately decided to pursue both, eventually becoming a fine conductor as well. In 1889, the year he and Zverev parted ways, he sketched and abandoned a piano concerto, but the one he began the following year is his first major work, his Opus 1. This is the score that made his name as a composer, and it was completed in a rush of passion and elation, with Rachmaninoff working from 5 in the morning until 8 in the evening and scoring the last two movements in just two and a half days. It would be 10 years, however, before Rachmaninoff would finish his second piano concerto, which quickly became his greatest hit and his calling card. He played it with the Chicago Symphony when he made his debut in Orchestra Hall on December 3, 1909, the first of his eight appearances with the orchestra. Although Chicago didn't get to hear it, by then Rachmaninoff had written a third piano concerto tailor-made for his first North American tour in late 1909. Rachmaninoff introduced the work in New York on November 28th with Walter Damrosch and the New York Symphony. He played it there again in January with Gustav Mahler conducting the New York Philharmonic, only weeks after Mahler's own first symphony in its American premiere was a flop. Rachmaninoff was bowled over by Mahler's meticulous rehearsal method. The accompaniment, Rachmaninoff recalled, which is rather complicated, had been practiced to the point of perfection by his attention to detail and by his refusal to stop working until he was satisfied. Rehearsal ran an hour overtime. The New York Times thought Rachmaninoff's playing occasionally lacked brilliance, but that the orchestral accompaniment was outstanding. The New York Herald somewhat half-heartedly called the work one of the most interesting piano concertos of recent years, but noted that 
its great length and extreme difficulties bar it from performance by any but pianists of exceptional technical powers, an assessment that still holds today. Rachmaninoff played the concerto when he appeared with the Chicago Symphony for the second time in January 1920. Although in 1909 Rachmaninoff was known as one of the great piano virtuosos, he began his new concerto not with solo fireworks, but with almost Mozartian clarity and understatement, a discreet accompaniment to which the piano adds a quiet, simple melody in bare octaves. It's as plain and haunting as chant. And although Rachmaninoff told musicologist Joseph Yasser that the theme came to him ready-made, Yasser wasn't surprised when he later discovered a strikingly similar Russian liturgical melody. Rachmaninoff said that he thought of the piano theme as a kind of song, and he took pains to find an accompaniment that would not muffle this singing. He was understandably delighted with the care Mahler lavished on the orchestral part. As the movement progresses, both melody and accompaniment are explored and developed at length, as is a lyrical second theme. The climax of the movement is the magnificent solo cadenza, as long and tough as any in the repertory, which takes the place of a formal recapitulation. The piano writing is so symphonic, complex, and multifaceted that we barely notice that the orchestra has temporarily dropped out. In the middle movement, intermezzo, a curiously light title for music so big and involved, the piano's entrance is both unmistakable and disruptive because it takes control with its first phrase and leads the music in new directions, eventually settling in D-flat, an unexpected destination for a concerto in D minor. A new waltz theme introduced by the clarinet and bassoon over fancy piano filigree is a cleverly disguised version, almost note for note, of the concerto's monastic opening melody. The finale, which begins fully formed while the intermezzo is still finishing up, is the kind of virtuoso tour de force Rachmaninoff's fans expected in 1909 and courageous pianists still love delivering today. It's also richly inventive with a fantastic playful scherzando in E-flat as a mid-movement diversion. The ending, predictably, is designed to test the limits of virtuosity and bring down the house. Throughout Rachmaninoff's life, it was fashionable, if not in fact honorable, in progressive music circles to disparage his music. Rachmaninoff had always worried that by splitting his time between playing the piano, conducting, and composing, he had spread himself too thin. I have chased three hairs, he once said. Can I be certain that I have captured one? For many years, Rachmaninoff's stature as a pianist was undisputed, but by the time of his death in 1943, he appeared with the Chicago Symphony for the last time just six weeks before he died, he had been written off as an old-fashioned composer, hopelessly sentimental, out of touch, and irrelevant. As Virgil Thompson told the young playwright Edward Albee in 1948, it is really extraordinary, after all, that a composer so famous should have enjoyed so little the esteem of his fellow composers. The sacrosanct Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians in its fifth edition concluded its dismal appraisal of his output. The enormous popular success some few of Rachmaninoff's works had in his lifetime is not likely to last and musicians never regarded it with much favor. 
But in the last few years, his star has been on the rise. Now, as Rachmaninoff always hoped, it is his music and not his piano playing that keeps his name alive. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 3. And now on to Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 1, Winter Daydreams. The work lasts about 43 minutes. In 1866, the year Tchaikovsky wrote his first symphony, a middle-aged Anton Bruckner finally finished his own first symphony after 15 months of tough going and with two earlier efforts left abandoned and unfinished. Johannes Brahms had already been working quietly on his first symphony for a decade, and it would take another 10 years before he was satisfied with it. But Tchaikovsky, in his mid-twenties and fresh from the conservatory, launched his symphonic career with little anxiety or experience, turning out this Symphony No. 1 in a matter of months. For most 19th century composers, writing symphonies was serious business, particularly after Beethoven's watershed cycle of nine works. And in the second half of the century, starting a first symphony was a genuine act of courage. Unlike Brahms, Tchaikovsky clearly did not suffer from the fear of following Beethoven's example. Without apparent difficulty, he composed a setting of Schiller's On die Freude, which Beethoven set as the finale of his Ninth Symphony, to mark his graduation from the St. Petersburg Conservatory in the fall of 1865. Straight out of school with a silver medal and fine recommendations, Tchaikovsky set off for Moscow in January 1866, where he had accepted a teaching post at Nikolai Rubinstein's Russian Musical Society, later the Moscow Conservatory. The move at first proved difficult, but Tchaikovsky soon fell into the pattern of teaching, reporting an unusually sympathetic relationship with the Moscow ladies whom I teach. He made many new friends, including his future publisher, Pyotr Jorgensen, discovered Dickens, the Pickwick Papers made him laugh aloud, and benefited from the domineering presence of Rubinstein, who not only oversaw Tchaikovsky's musical affairs and dictated his musical tastes, but also bought him an entire new wardrobe. Tchaikovsky arrived in Moscow with no experience writing for orchestra beyond his student efforts, an overture, the storm, and the Andi Freude cantata. Once settled, he finished the orchestration of a concert overture in C, which Rubinstein greatly disliked, and revised an overture in F, which was successfully performed on March 16th. By then, he had begun his first symphony, apparently at Rubinstein's urging. Work went smoothly at first, at least until Tchaikovsky's progress was derailed by the first artistic setback of his career. César Cui, still known to music students today as the spokesman of The Five, the group of Russian composers including Borodin, Balakirev, Mozorsky, and Remsky-Korsakov, who banded together in 1875 to foster a national school of music, well, he published a belated review of Tchaikovsky's On die Freude, which he dismissed as utterly feeble. Tchaikovsky was devastated. When I read that frightful judgment, I don't know what I did with myself. My vision grew dark, my head spun, and I ran out of the cafe like a madman. I didn't realize what I was doing, nor where I was. All day I wandered aimlessly through the city, repeating, I'm sterile, insignificant, nothing will come out of me, I'm ungifted. But 
Tchaikovsky went back to work on the symphony, which occupied several hours each day and night. By May, he reported that it was going sluggishly. He was having trouble sleeping and began to fear death. For the rest of his life, he avoided composing at night because it reminded him of this painful time. That summer, when he went to visit his sister, he suffered from nervous attacks, numbness in his hands and feet, and hallucinations. Not for the last time in his life, a doctor pronounced him one step from insanity. When Tchaikovsky went back to St. Petersburg in August, he showed the score to his former teachers, Nikolai Zaremba and Anton Rubinstein, Nikolai's brother, who both criticized the music harshly. Tchaikovsky returned to Moscow and to work on the symphony, no doubt incorporating some of their suggestions. The piece was introduced to the public in stages. In December, the scherzo alone was played publicly in Moscow without apparent success. Two months later, both the adagio and scherzo were performed to enthusiastic applause and at least one decent review. It is melodious to the highest degree and excellently scored. The entire symphony was given under Nikolai Rubinstein's baton a year later, though it was not heard again for 15 years. By then, Tchaikovsky had written many of the works for which he would long be remembered. Romeo and Juliet, the B-flat piano concerto, his only violin concerto, Swan Lake, the great opera, Eugene Onegin, the 1812 overture. And he had made great strides as a symphonist, with four already under his belt. Before the first symphony was published in 1874, Tchaikovsky made a few minor adjustments. Bruckner, on the other hand, revised his first symphony in 1868, 1877, and 1884, and made even more extensive changes in 1890 and 1891. At the time Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 1 was performed in this final version in Moscow, 1883, Tchaikovsky told a friend, I have a soft spot for it, for it is a sin of my sweet youth. All his life, Tchaikovsky was painfully aware of his deficiencies as a composer, weaknesses that have never stood in the way of enormous public favor. By 1883, he had enough experience with the problems of symphonic form to recognize how naive he was to tackle a symphony in his sweet youth, but the work is hardly a sin. Even in 1866, Tchaikovsky had a sense of drama and orchestral color and a way with melody that was far in advance of most other composers of the day. And he had already found his own voice. Listen to the opening of the symphony, an oddly distinctive melody in the flutes and bassoons over a mysterious rustle from the violins. The whole first movement, despite some spotty seam work, is remarkably fresh in its melodic outline and scoring. There is a moment at the start of the development section when distant chords in the horns dance quietly over low strings that previews the Waltz of the Flowers from the Nutcracker written two decades later. Not only is the oboe melody in the adagio one of the earliest characteristic Tchaikovsky tunes, but the way it is echoed by the bassoon and encouraged by the glistening scales from the flute would quickly become one of his signature effects. The first eight measures, serenely setting the stage for the main melody, were borrowed from his student overture, The Storm. 
Tchaikovsky wrote the scherzo first, reusing material originally intended for a piano sonata in C-sharp minor and demonstrating how much he had learned from the scores by Mendelssohn that he admired. The Italian symphony was a particular favorite. The music for the trio midsection is new, Tchaikovsky's first great orchestral waltz. There is wonderfully evocative and fiery, dramatic music in the finale, enough to disguise Tchaikovsky's uncertainty in bringing a symphony to a satisfying conclusion, the challenge that had troubled nearly every composer since Beethoven. A rather labored fugue sits where heavy-duty development ought to take place, and there is a bit more bombast at the end than even Tchaikovsky could sustain, but there are many splendid moments, and the lasting impression is of a composer who was born to write symphonies. A final word about the nickname Winter Daydreams, which Tchaikovsky himself invented with no apparent programmatic idea in mind. He intended to give titles to all four movements, but got no farther than the adagio before he decided to let the music stand on its own. Program notes by Philip Husher on Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 1. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.